Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob, and here James Jordan's going to give one final overview of the Joseph narrative, particularly focusing on the theme of kingship in this story before he moves into the narrative itself. Before we jump in, do be sure to check out the links in the show notes. There you'll find a link to the most recent Theopolis conversation on our website. This conversation has been started by John Ahern, and the topic for this conversation is music and the church. We really think you'll enjoy it. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this episode. And here is James Jordan giving one final overview of the Joseph narrative. Father in heaven, we ask that you bless us as we consider your word today and in this final thematic study of Joseph, that you'd help us to have a better understanding of your ways and understand better how to live as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last thing we'll do by way of introduction to the Joseph narrative. We've looked at the theme of food and the theme of dreams and the theme of clothing. Now I want to look at the theme of kingship because this series of events happens in the context of kings being prophesied. And we have essentially two kings in this passage, or two future kings, Benjamin and Judah, and the relationship between the two is interesting and significant. And once we get into all the details of the text, we might miss some of the broader parts of it, so I want to talk about it a little bit by way of introduction. In Genesis chapter 35, right at the end of the Jacob narrative, God had appeared to Jacob, and in chapter 35, verse 11, he says, Kings shall come forth from you. And then the very next thing we read is the birth of Benjamin. So the statement, kings will come forth from you, is possibly, at this point, we couldn't know, just reading Genesis, that Benjamin has a special kingly status. However, if we're reading in Genesis and we don't know later on that the first king of Israel is Saul, who's from Benjamin, all we have is Genesis, we do notice that Joseph, being a prophet and inspired by God, gives Benjamin special kingly honors. And it's possible to read this only in a sentimental way that Joseph loved his own personal younger brother more than all the rest, and so he gives him special honors. And it's also true that he honors Benjamin in order to test his other brothers to see if they will be jealous of Benjamin the same way they were jealous of him. But in addition, as we'll see in just a second, the treatment goes beyond that. In chapter 43, verse 34... The second time the brothers come to Egypt and Joseph feeds them in his house, verse 31, he washes his face and came out and he controlled himself and said, set on bread. And so, verse 32, they served Joseph by himself and the brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. They don't eat with others. We'll have to discuss that when we get to it. But notice that Joseph doesn't eat with the brothers either. He sides with the Egyptians. Now they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in astonishment. 
how could Joseph know this? They don't know that he's Joseph. And he took portions from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Five is the number of power. We'll see in a minute. This treatment of Benjamin anticipates his having a kingly status. Verse 21, when Joseph sends the brothers back to the promised land to collect their family, then the sons of Israel did so, that is, they took wagons from the land of Egypt to gather up their families and their possessions to come to Goshen. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the mouth of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for their journey. And to all of them he gave each man changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave three hundred pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Now, that's extra. And again, the five is a sign of power, not just benefit. And at this point, there's no longer any need to test the brothers. He's seen their repentance, and so he's not doing this to Benjamin as a way of testing the brothers. This is something else. And so, if we were just moving through Genesis, and we notice that there's a king prophesied, that the son that's born right after that is Benjamin, and then in chapter 36, the whole story about Esau and his line uh, moves to the kings, and there's a whole bunch of stuff about kings from Esau's line, we would think, hmm, kingship is coming up here. And then we notice how Joseph treats Benjamin. We begin to suspect that Benjamin is somehow or other the king. The youngest son will be the king. But that's not the end of the story. And we know from the rest of the Bible that Saul is the first king in Israel. And he is from Benjamin. And so we are fulfilling this prophecy, and so now we can see with the later parts of the Bible in view that Benjamin is the king. However, there's another king here, and that's Judah. We get over to chapter 49, the prophecy, starting in 49 verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons will lie down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp, that's kingly. From the prey, my son, you've gone up, he crouches, he lies down like a lion, as a lion who dares to rouse him up. And then he says, continuing this king theme, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, or until he comes to Shiloh, or whatever. That's one of these verses we'll have to look at when we get to it. And more kingly stuff comes up here. He ties his foal to the vine, donkey's colt to the choice vine, washes garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, Wine is a kingly image. And so, there is some type of kingship associated with Judah. Well, now, how did that happen? Well, there's one way in which it happens, and that is, of the sons, we have Reuben, and he's disqualified. And then we have Simeon and Levi, and they are disqualified for their sins, and so Judah is who's left and by itself. That would make Judah just the next in line to be the king. But we've already seen that in some sense Benjamin is the king. And it's actually Benjamin who's being treated more like a king at this point. Well, there is something that happens in this narrative that is prophetic and important. 
and that is that Judah offers to die for Benjamin, and in a sense, we begin to see the theme that Judah is a replacement for Benjamin. It doesn't actually have to happen, but it could happen. In chapter 43, this is after they come back from Egypt the first time, it says the famine was severe in the land. It came about when they finished eating the grains that they brought from Egypt that their father said, go back and buy us a little food. And Judah spoke to him. Judah spoke up, saying, The man solemnly warned us you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. That's Benjamin. If you send our brother with us, if you send Benjamin with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you don't send, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother Benjamin is with you. Then Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly by telling the man that you had another brother? And they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have a brother? So we answered his questions. How could we possibly know he would say, Bring your brother down here? And Judah said to his father Israel, and this is what's significant, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones, and I myself will be a surety for him. From my hand you may require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then I shall have sinned before you all the days. And then, when we get to the actual climax of it, Judah is the one who, when Joseph threatens to make Benjamin a slave, Judah comes and says in chapter 44, verse 33, 32 and 33, Your servant became a surety, that's me, Judah, I became a surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, then I shall have sinned for all the days before my father. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. In other words, he offers to become a slave in the place of Benjamin. So Judah offers to die for Benjamin. After understand, death means being thrown into the pit, being thrown into prison, being made a slave, these are all forms of death. They're all forms of death in this narrative. And they're the ways in which Joseph himself dies, being sold into slavery, being put into prison, being put in a pit. And so Judah is offering here. Judah is offering to be Benjamin's replacement, so Benjamin doesn't have to. Now, why is that a better kind of king? Well, the true king must be elevated after dying for the first king. That's what is hinted at here. The true king must be elevated after dying, and ultimately dying for the first king. Now, if you notice, the contrast between David and Saul is this. Saul is just made a king when he's a handsome young guy and has full power and strength, and he's his father's son, and he goes out looking for these she-asses, and he doesn't find them, but they make him king. David, on the other hand, has to go through all these years of suffering and death before he becomes king. So Saul is an Adamic king. He just becomes king without having to undergo death. David is a type of Jesus. He undergoes death before he becomes king. Now David does not die for Saul, because he can't do it. But the contrast is still there. Saul becomes king without going through suffering. David becomes king, David from Judah becomes king after suffering. But the additional thing that's here is that Judah has offered to die for Benjamin, and ultimately it's Jesus who dies for Adam. 
Adam became king without going through any suffering, or he was put into his position, and he would have. Jesus, of course, has to go through the ultimate form of death, the penultimate form of death, being estranged from God the Father and the Spirit. He goes through that death to become king, but he dies for Adam. As Judah offered to die for Benjamin, and that's how Judah became the king, Jesus offers to die for Adam and everyone in Adam, and therefore he becomes king. He replaces Adam. And Jesus is the son of Judah and not of Benjamin. His genealogy is traced explicitly back to David and not back to Benjamin. And it's probably significant that the most prominent person that Jesus dies for in the New Testament is named Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. This theme of Judah dying for Benjamin is carried forward when Jesus dies for Saul, Paul, of the tribe of Benjamin. So the theme that starts up here is continued through the Bible, and it's important. So I wanted to call attention to it. To become a king, you have to pass through death. And there are degrees of this death. But death always involves some sense of abandonment. And Joseph dies when he's abandoned by his brothers, and then when he's thrown into prison and you're abandoned, Jesus is abandoned on the cross. Jesus' physical death has nothing to do directly with our salvation. As you know, Jesus had finished his work by the time he died. He says it's finished, and then they give him wine to drink, so his Nazarite vow is over. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, so he's now no longer estranged from the Father. And then he gave up his own spirit, which is not a normal way to die. He didn't suffer physical death. You can't just give up your spirit. You can't just say, I think I'll die now. I can't do that, neither can you. Whenever we die, we will be passive when we die. Death will come on us. Well, death, physical death did not come on Jesus. He did not suffer physical death. He suffered estrangement from the Father and the Spirit. They cut themselves off from him, and he didn't want them to. So he suffered that. He was passive. But he did not suffer physical death. He gave up the Spirit. Of course, that's the beginning of Pentecost there when Jesus gives up his Spirit so we may have it. But the physical death is not the important thing. The abandonment is the important part of death. And as the psalmist says, you will not abandon my soul in death. Physical death is not the same as being abandoned. But real death is. Being estranged from God, being cut off from the Garden of Eden, being cut off from fellowship with God, whatever. Those are the forms of death. And that's what Judah offers to undergo. Judah says, let me stay down here in Egypt estranged from my family, I'll never see my family again, I'll be a slave forever, but let Benjamin and all my brothers go back to the land of Canaan and be with Jacob. And that's offering to die, to be abandoned. And that's what makes him a king. So that's the first part of kingship here. True Kings are those who die for others. And Jesus says that in the New Testament. He says those who would be great must be least of all. You must be a servant in order to be a ruler. All of those are ways of getting at the same thing. The Gentiles lord it over. The Gentiles are like Saul in that passage. The Gentiles like to lord it over. But the true king, the Christian ruler, is one who serves, one who dies for others. 
as a husband has to die for his wife and so forth. Well, these are things we can talk about more as we progress through the text, but it's a theme we wanted to set out here at the beginning. The second aspect of kingship is kingship and power. And here I just want to call attention to this symbol of the number five. The hand is a symbol of power with its five fingers. When you think about power and strength, you're thinking about the hand in the Bible. There are two words for hand. There's the word palm, which is feminine and is a receptacle, it's passive. And then there's the word hand, which is masculine, which has the idea of grabbing something, holding something. It's the hand that has fingers. It's not the palm. And this idea of strength, of aggressiveness, is kingly. The high priest is ordained by having his ear circumcised, and then his right thumb circumcised, and then his right big toe circumcised. And the opening of the ear is priestly, the anointed hand is kingly, and the anointed foot is prophetic. Prophets are always going places, sending stuff out to the nations. The book of Matthew is the book that's full of sermons that you hear. It's priestly. The book of Mark is the book of action where Jesus is continually going here, going there. Immediately Jesus went here. Immediately Jesus went there. Jesus starts off casting out demons one after another throughout Mark chapter 1. Jesus is David in Mark. He's a king. He's a king who's being persecuted by Saul, who is King Herod. But he is the David, the future David, the man of action, the man whose hand is doing things. And of course, Luke is the gospel of of prophetic travels. In Luke, you're constantly going places. It's all about Jesus' travels as a prophet, so it's the gospel that focuses in on the foot. The hand is associated with power and with kingship in biblical symbolism. And the five fingers of the hand had to do with power. When Israel came out of Egypt, in your Bibles, it says they came out in martial array, but in Hebrew it says they came out five in a rank. In our army, if you have a squad of ten men, you have a sergeant over the squad and you have a corporal, who is his second in command, and the sergeant will have his four with him, and the corporal will have his four with him, even though the sergeant can also be over the whole deal. At least that's the way it was when I was in ROTC. So I assume that something like that is still there. We still tend to think of a hand of men as five. So when Benjamin is given these fivefold honors by Joseph, he's being treated as a king. He's being treated as power. And this number five and its association with power also shows up in chapter 47, verse 2. When all of them come down to the land of Goshen and are formally presented before Pharaoh, chapter 47 says, And Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. Behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. This business of bringing five is... Not an accident. He could have brought more, he could have brought less, but it's the sign of Israel's power and that they are going to be submissive to Pharaoh since they're living in his land. The hand of power is an important theme in Genesis 39. Since we have a short lesson today, I'll read at least part of it, and when we get to it, we'll look at this in a little bit more detail. But... This entire passage is set up partly in chapter 39 as Joseph's hand versus other people's hands, especially the hand of Potiphar's wife. And if they're going to arm wrestle, she's the one with the stronger hand at this point in the narrative. 
But so much of it is not brought out in the English translation. Let me just read to you some relevant verses. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the hand of the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. This just says, bought him from the Ishmaelites. And it could have said that in Hebrew very easily. But the author here has deliberately said, bought him from the hand of the Ishmaelites, because the theme of who has power is really important in this passage. In a sense, Joseph also is on his way to being a king. There are several different kinds of kings in this passage, and Joseph is another one. Joseph's deaths fit him to be at the right hand of Pharaoh, to ascend to the right hand of the emperor. So, first of all, the Ishmaelites' hands have power, and Joseph is bought from him. Verse 3 says, His master saw that Yahweh was with him, and how Yahweh caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph's hand has power now. It's everything in his hand prospers. Verse 4, So Joseph found favor in his sight, and he ministered to him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his hand. So the hand again is a symbol of power. Now Joseph's hand has strength. Verse 6, he left everything he owned in Joseph's hand. And with him around, he didn't concern himself with anything except the bread that he ate. See, bread is another huge theme, and every time food is mentioned in these passages, almost always the word bread is used rather than a more general word for food. Well, of course, since Joseph now has power, his hand is strength. That's attractive to Potiphar's wife. She makes suggestions to him. In verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me around, my master does not know what is in his house, and he has put all he owns in my hand. Well, now she uses her hand. Verse 12, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me, and he left his garment in her hand and fled outside. When she saw he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called the men of the household and made this accusation against him. And then finally, in this passage, talking about the hand of power, she makes accusation to Potiphar. Verse 20, Joseph's master, as Potiphar, took him and put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners was confined, and he was in the jail. The Yahweh was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Well, that's Potiphar himself, so Potiphar continues to like him. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the jail. So there is a very deliberate emphasis on the hand of power here. Who has power? And, of course, this is all moving toward Joseph's ascending to have full power and in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and actually having Pharaoh's signet, which means he has the power of Pharaoh to exercise. So, power is an important theme here, the ability to do things, and it's going to be very relevant for us to be aware of that as we get into the Joseph story. Finally, and along these lines of power, is the theme of kingship and anarchy. And this is not so much a theme as some comments I want to make as we get into it, but where we have left 
Jacob's family at the end of the Jacob narrative is that these brothers exist basically in anarchy. They don't respect their father. They don't respect his wishes. They do everything they want. And this will be continuing. When they deal with Joseph, we see rivalry and brother strife. The dangers that start in Genesis chapter 4 of brother-brother strife are now coming to the fore. We now have a community of people. Before we had fathers and sons and basically a family situation, but now we are moving toward a nation situation. And we've got all these different people here. Each one has its own family. They're going out and living in different places. They're doing different things, and they're not getting along. How do you deal with this? What do you need at this stage in history in order to settle a nation? Before, the father, the patriarch, could more or less say what was supposed to be done. Abraham says, let's do this. That's what you're supposed to do. He's got one son or two sons. He makes decisions. Isaac's got two sons. He makes decisions. Jacob's got 12 sons. That's a lot of sons. And they're not listening to him. They're not actually paying much attention to their father anymore. The situation has gotten so big that family rule isn't adequate. Well, what you need when you have brother-brother strife and conflict is law. Law is the cure for anarchy and it's the cure for rivalry and fratricide and it's the only way you can have a nation. And so when you get to the law, you find a whole lot of the law is concerned with social matters. If somebody steals from somebody else, if somebody borrows something from somebody else and loses it, or if you make a deposit with somebody while you go on a journey and they lose it, or if your wife cheats on you, or if you cheat on your wife, or if you seduce somebody else's slave girl... As in Leviticus 19, a whole paragraph devoted to that. If brothers live together in one place, in other words, they're not married. You see, when you marry, for this cause a man leaves his father and mother. So when it says if brothers live together, that means they're not married. And one of them gets married, and then he dies without a male heir, then one of the other unmarried brothers can take his place. But that's regulating rivalry. If... You accidentally kill somebody, the next of kin can take revenge. Not somebody else, but you can run to a city of refuge. All of these problems of anarchy and brother-brother strife, rivalry, envy, covetousness, which lie behind all of this kind of social strife, they're all taken care of by law. But law is not enough. Because law by itself doesn't do you any good at all. We can pass all the laws we want, but if we don't have an enforcement mechanism, it doesn't matter. Before you have the law, you have to have a king. And you know, we're using this word king to mean one who wields the fivefold power. Whether he's called a melech or not. That's your Hebrew word for melech. We have it in the English word Malcolm. If you name your son Malcolm, you're naming him king. But... Whether Joseph is called that or not, Joseph has to have power. And before the law is given, the king is set up. Now, we don't think of it that way because in the history of Israel, you have the law with Moses, and then 500 years later, you get kings. 
But remember, the real king of Israel is Yahweh. And Yahweh establishes his kingship before he gives the law. Because law without power is impotent. If you're teaching in the classroom here, what do you have to do? You set up the rules in the classroom. You say, all right, I don't know how you do things here. One of my rules would be, if you address me as a teacher, you stand up. The first time a student puts up his hand, doesn't stand up, I'd say, remember to stand up. But if one of them gave me any type of look, you got to come down on them with all fours. The very first time. Show power. So that everybody's a little bit afraid. You can't let them get by, or if there's a more explicit rule that you've given, don't leave the room until I dismiss you. Somebody hops up to leave when they hear a bell or something. Whatever the situation is, you have to enforce it with power. Not too much, but certainly not too little. And then there's fear, and then the law will be respected. Well, what happens when they come out of Egypt? Well, God does all these plagues. He shows his power. Israelites have all seen his power in the plagues. It's amazing stuff. Then they see his power parting the Red Sea and defeating the Egyptian army. Then they see his power in giving them bread and his power in fighting the Amalekites. And then he comes to Mount Sinai and it's so powerful and so loud and so fearful that people are falling on the ground in terror and begging Moses to go and be a mediator. And then the law is given. Kingly power is established, and then when the law is given, it will be respected. If you have power without law, that's still probably better than anarchy, but it can also reinforce anarchy because it tends to be pretty arbitrary. The U.S. government today is pretty much lawless. The government exercises power on behalf of this group and that group and this group and that group. Well, all that does is it magnifies the anarchy that's out there. When blacks and homosexuals and women and people with Kleinfelder's disease and every other little group in this country are given special privileges by the government, all you've done is multiplied and reinforced anarchy instead of creating a common law that will be the same for the home-born as for the stranger, which is what the law says all the time. But even there, that will restrain some forms of anarchy. But you need both of these together. But the order is power and then giving of law. And so what happens in the Joseph narrative is, the Joseph narrative establishes the theme of power and rule. And then when we get to Exodus and we get the law, this part, the kingly part, has already been shown. We've already learned a lot of things about kings and what kings do. What Pharaoh does. The fact that the king and Joseph provide bread for the people in an emergency situation. Obviously not the normal business of the government to do that. But in an emergency situation when there's no other power that's able to do it, the power can provide the bread. Well, what happens when we get out in the wilderness and any bread? Yahweh, the king, the power, provides the bread. Now, once we get into promised land, we'll grow our own bread. But we're in the wilderness. We don't have any bread. The king gives bread. And he gives law. Pharaoh. So, Pharaoh, in emergency situation, Pharaoh provides bread. Joseph provides bread. So, 
A lot of things about kingship are in this passage. And they are given to us first as a control on anarchy. Jacob, as a patriarch, does not have enough power to control all 12 of his sons now that they have their own families and their own servants, and now that there are several thousand people there, it's too much for Jacob to control. And so now we're revealed that in this incipient national situation with all this diversity, we need a power that's above the patriarch, and that's the king. And the Joseph narrative starts to show us this, and then the law that is needed is given in Exodus as the second cure, the second half of the cure for anarchy and rivalry. All just got down here, no peril in the New Testament. Jesus dies and becomes the king, and then the epistles are written as the new law of the new king. In other words, in a way, Jesus is like Joseph. Joseph goes through these deaths and he becomes the king, and then what follows on that after a time is the full law is given. Well, Jesus doesn't really go around giving new laws. He calls people back to the old ones, and he gives teaching in parable. But he doesn't, in a sense, give a bunch of rules. But you get into Paul's epistles, and Paul says, Rejoice always, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Setting up the new society. It's established that Jesus is king of the new society, and now we need a law to complement the anarchy. What, what, which of Paul's epistles is particularly concerned with anarchy? Not Galatians. Galatians would be partly, but I mean the epistle of anarchy. It's 1 Corinthians. Everything is anarchical in 1 Corinthians. You see, and what does he do? Well, he says Jesus is king, and you've got a hierarchy of officers. Women have this place. The pastors have this place. He sets up this order, and he also gives them specific directions. So once the new covenant comes, you have the same kind of problem, only at a deeper and higher level. And now... Something of the same kind of progression is seen. Jesus becomes king and he's given all power and then we get a new iteration of the law for this new kind of society. Where is it in chapter 37 that the Joseph narrative actually starts? Yeah, chapter 37 to 50. Finally, just got down here, Joseph's deaths fit him for kingship. If we've got four different kings in this passage, Benjamin, Judah, Pharaoh, and Joseph, Joseph is the one that receives actually the most attention here. Benjamin and Judah are sort of prophetic kings. They are showing us what kings will be like in the future. But Joseph is the one who ascends to power. And so his rise to power and what he goes through, what God puts him through in order to make him the king and the savior and the one who feeds and the one who rules are the things we want to look at. Joseph dies to Israel. There's a progression here. Joseph dies to Israel and is put over Israel. In other words, they kick him out and he goes into the pit. But eventually, he's in charge of all those brothers. So he dies to Israel and is put over Israel. He also dies to Egypt and is put over Egypt. And that's sandwiched in. He's in Potiphar's house. He has to die to that, go into prison. And then he comes out and he's put over Egypt. So I've got the arrangement is chiastic. He dies to Israel. He dies to Egypt. He comes to rule over Egypt. And he comes to rule over Israel. That's the order in which this takes place. Now I've got down there, compare Romans 11, where... The gospel now goes, first of all, to the Gentiles, and then eventually Israel is converted 
afterwards. And of course that is shadowed out here. Israel rejects Joseph and, well, of course, Israel as a person doesn't, but the brothers reject Joseph, and he goes to Egypt, and the Egyptians convert, and then, finally, his brothers convert. So, those are some of the aspects of kingship here, and both aspects of Joseph's kingship are preceded by his death. If I was a psychologist, I'm sure that there's probably ways to reflect on this. If Rich Bledsoe were here, he could talk about this better than me, I'm sure. But what is a king? A king is somebody who has a true king. A king is somebody who has the wisdom to deal with people in society. You've got a group of people here. How do you get them to live together and not be in anarchy, not be in rivalry and jealousy and at each other's throats and taking offense at every little thing? How do you prevent that? What does a wise king do? Well, a wise king is somebody who is organizing a society, whether he's a pastor of a church, or elder in the church, or whatever, a businessman with a large corporation. The king organizes society. Well, what is the preparation for becoming a person expert at organizing society? The king has to experience a long time of isolation and abandonment. That's what we said death was. Death is being abandoned and cut off. Now that seems the reverse of the way it ought to be. I think natural wisdom would say you just kind of grow up learning more and more and more more how to deal with people and then you become a king. But the Bible says, I'm sure that's true and it's part of it, and you see it with Joseph. Joseph is a good manager in his father's household. But an essential part of it is Joseph has to be completely cut off from this society and experience this time of abandonment in both cases. And this is what what happens with David. David in the Psalms is full of all of these Psalms about being abandoned and left. Jesus on the cross experiences abandonment and isolation from society. And so there is something that God works into us through the process of being abandoned that enables us when we come back, when we're resurrected, to be better kings than we would have been. And I think that would be an interesting thing to know more about, but it's a fact. It's a fact that Saul was not a good king because Saul never went through death and abandonment. He just went on from being a smart guy to being a smarter guy. David became a good king because he experienced all of this cutting off from society, from the things Maybe part of it is that when you're isolated from the things of your life, you're forced to think about them in new ways. And, of course, it's true that being a servant helps you to be a leader later on. There's some things that are kind of obvious about that, but I think there's some things that are mysterious about it, too. Jesus becomes King of kings and Lord of lords because for three hours on the cross, he's cut off from the Father and the Spirit. He's completely cut off from all society. Everybody abandons him on earth and in heaven, and including the angels. And as a result... He's fit to become the organizer of all society. So that's the theme here, and maybe we can think about it more as we go, but it's one of the important revelations here, that Joseph and also Judah, who offers to be a true king, he offers to be cut off and abandoned and die, and that's what fits him to be a king. Somehow or other, that's part of the way God grows us. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.